All right. Well, let's get going. It's great to see everyone here. I hope that you are wide awake and full of energy. I was, I was actually going to say bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but like, is anyone familiar with that phrase? Okay, thank goodness. I was afraid this is one of those like 1930 phrases that for some reason I know and no one else has used it in like the past 20 years. I have a random smattering of those, uh, but I'm glad that this isn't like completely out of usage right now. Uh, we are going to be getting to the end of our evangelism series. There's just one more lesson after, or two lessons in the book, but one Sunday we're going to cover them both. And we've gone over a lot of material so far. Uh, if you remember last time we were here, we went over how we're supposed to handle questions and objections. And there are two main points that we were to consider. And the first is that we're supposed to evaluate the question, right? right? We're supposed to see if this is a question coming out of a genuine curiosity or if this is a question designed just to derail the conversation completely. And the second point is, whatever our response is, we need to bring it back to the authority of the scriptures. And so if they say something like, and I, I'm, I think that you may have heard this example before, they say something like, can God, if God is truly omnipotent, can he make a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? Because if he can, then he's not omnipotent because he just made something he, he can't lift. And if he can't, then he's not omnipotent because there's something he can't do. And if you ever hear that question, it's really a question designed to derail the conversation because it's, it's a logically inconsistent question. You might as well ask if God can make a married bachelor or a pink that looks like purple or square circle. You can't give coherent questions or coherent answers to a completely incoherent question. Uh, and that's where we have to evaluate this question because maybe it's possible that they've heard this phrase before and they're coming to you genuinely saying, hey, I've heard this. What is the answer to this? How do I, how do I handle that sort of question? And if you get it, you need to, to point out to them like, hey, uh, when we talk about God being omnipotent, we're talking about his power to do that's rationally coherent with his proven character. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 tells us, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It's impossible for God to create a rock that he can't lift, not because it is out of the scope of his power, but because God, who is the same today, yesterday, and forever, will never go against his own character and moral, moral standard. So you see how this works. We evaluate the question. We figure out if they're being honest or if they're just trying to derail the conversation. And then we bring the conversation back to the authority of the scriptures. So today we're going to go over lesson six on our ongoing evangelism class and go over child evangelism. Now, how many of you have ever really thought about child evangelism? A few of you? Okay, that's fair. Uh, I get it. We're in the youth group. We have a wide age range, right? I mean, we have everything from people in, I think, sixth grade, halfway through now, congratulations, all the way to people who are about to head off to college in like six, seven months here. Uh, so there are probably a few of us who, when we stop to think about child evangelism, we go, you know what? I'm a little closer in age to being on the receiving end of child evangelism than I am on the side of uh, I am giving child evangelism. And so you might be tempted to think, maybe this lesson doesn't apply to me too much. But let me assure you, it does. Uh, how many people in here helped out in VBS or want to help out in VBS this past year? Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you uh, help out 
on Sunday in the Sunday schools or would like to help out on Sunday in the Sunday schools? Uh, how many of you have cousins that are younger than you? How many of you have siblings that are younger than you that aren't here in youth group? <laughs> I saw that. Okay, how many of you raise your hand for any of these questions? I know there's more. Okay, yeah, there, okay it's, it's basically all of us. I, I think there might be one or two people in here who maybe that doesn't uh, cover you, but that's okay because eventually this is going to come up. Uh, so this is, this is important because we need to be properly equipped to share the gospel message correctly when we share it with children. Uh, I want you to remember when, when Jesus was teaching the disciples, or when Jesus was teaching, rather, and the disciples actively tried to keep children from coming to him, what did Jesus do? Who remembers? Remember, he's teaching, and a bunch of children try to come up to Jesus, and then they say, no, 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 Jesus is too important for you. What did Jesus do at that moment? Does anyone remember? Yeah, he, he rebuked the disciples and said, do not hinder the children, but let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and this wasn't just an object lesson. Like, Jesus didn't want just like, hey, let me bring a child so I can have this object lesson and then shoo them away so I can get back to the important stuff. Jesus considers children coming to know him to be of vital importance. In Psalm 102.18, the psalmist writes how one of the reasons God has provided us with the Bible is so that future generations, or the way the psalmist puts it, generations that are not yet born would know God and praise him. But there are some real issues when it comes to child evangelism. Uh, attention span, that's, that's a big one, right? Have you ever tried to have a serious conversation with like a three-year-old or four-year-old? It's hard, okay? I mean, if I, if I ever saw someone sit a two or three-year-old on a carpet square and stand up in front of them and say, I'm going to give you a lesson for the next half hour, I would probably pull that guy aside and be like, hey man, um, <laughs> you need to change something. Like the, or you need to, either need to change your presentation style or maybe you come join us in the high school group and the, <laughs> and the youth group and, and that's really where uh, your, your, your best teaching would, would be found. At the same time, we don't want to turn the message of God's salvation into meaningless noise. Uh, just to make sure that we have their undivided attention. So how do we effectively and appropriately tell children the gospel? Well, we're going to answer this by looking at some common pitfalls that we can be tempted to fall into when evangelizing the children. And the first pitfall is going to be the temptation to oversimplify the gospel of Christ. Because it, it makes sense, right? Uh, do young kids have the same level of understanding as an adult? No, I mean, they don't. Uh, God has designed us to all go through developmental stages. When my first son was born, Amy found this really great app called the Wonder Weeks app. Uh, and it's something I recommend to everyone when they're having their first child. I, I love giving it to them because it is such a helpful resource. It shows how your baby mentally develops. Like every one of us in about the same time frame goes through the exact same mental developments. As a child starts to recognize contrasts, as they start to recognize shape, as they start to recognize relationships. And at that point, they're like, hey, this is my mom and dad. These are my siblings, and I want to be with them. And this is someone I don't know, and I'm not very comfortable with them. And we all go through it at right about the same rate. In the same way, even up into adulthood, our brains are continuing to develop and mature. And there's going to be some concepts that a three-year and six-year-old won't be able to understand no matter how patiently and deeply I try to explain it to them. 
So while it's important that we present the gospel in a manner they can understand, it's easy to go too far, to, to be over, too overly zealous in trying to make sure they understand it to the point that we actually oversimplify the gospel and end up leaving, or end up leaving out key aspects of the gospel. We end up downplaying the or importance of gospel aspects. And as a result, we end up failing to present the gospel at all in the end. God has established one universal means for salvation, regardless of race, gender, or even age. And when we present the gospel to children, we must make sure that we're still clearly explaining concepts such as good and evil, sin and punishment, and repentance and faith. We must explain God's holiness, holiness and his wrath against sin. We must explain the deity of Christ and his atonement for sin. And we must explain the resurrection and lordship of Christ. Uh, this past week, I actually had a, a real fun thing happened where I was at someone's house and their young child, like a, maybe three or four, asked to pray. Like, hey, there's a group of people I'd like to pray for everyone. And we said, okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So they, they thank God for the food and they said, and please let Jesus come back from the dead. And, and afterwards, you know, we're all kind of chuckling because the, their parent, you know, took them aside like, hey, we've been over this. You don't need to keep praying that God would bring Jesus back from the dead. He already did it, okay? Three days after his death on the cross, God brought Jesus back from the dead. And, and yeah, we laughed. Like, I, you know, it's always fun to see another parent's struggles. Um, I, I don't know. Parents are sadistic like that, I guess. But it, it was fun to see. But it was really a praiseworthy thing. Clearly, their parents had been teaching them the truth of the gospel. And even at that young age, they were starting to think about this and understand what it means that, yeah, Jesus had to come and die for our sins. And they understood that they needed Jesus alive to have forgiveness from their sins. And I think that's great because if their parents had oversimplified things to just God gets sad when we do bad things, I don't think that that child would have been at the point of recognizing where uh, their sin was and their need for Jesus to rise again. When the Bible talks about teaching children, the emphasis is always on teaching them thoroughly rather than teaching them some simplified and abridged version of the gospel. And we see this in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. It says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. When we share the gospel to children, we must make sure that we're doing the full gospel to them. A second pitfall we can fall into in child evangelism is trying to coerce a profession of faith. So I, I do thank you all for coming up to the front row, but I apologize that I, I tried to coerce you all to do so. Uh, we shouldn't try to be coercing children to come to a profession of faith. Uh, when I was a child, the church I went to, they did a special second hour Sunday school. So we, you know, first hour, we all had the Sunday school like we have here at North Lake, but then second hour, they would do children's church. So instead of having everyone come to the main auditorium, if you're like, I don't know, it's been a long time. I think it was seven, six or seven to about 12 or 13, you would go to children's church. And the husband and wife couple that were there, every single Sunday, they would have a time where they say, everyone bow your heads. And if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, just raise your hand right now or come up front. And I think I probably responded to that gospel invitation 
at least 20 times over the course of my six to seven years I was in children's church. And I did this even though I remember quite vividly a skit they did once where they talked about how, hey, once you invite someone into your home, you don't have to keep inviting them into your home again. And even after that, I'm pretty sure that that Sunday I raised my hand, yes, I'd like to invite Jesus into my heart. Uh, And the reason this happens is because we're using this peer pressure. Like even though your heads are bowed and the music is softly playing and no one can see you, we're still trying to peer pressure the group into someone needs to respond to this call for repentance. Genuine repentance doesn't require public shaming and it doesn't require peer pressure. Regardless of age, God is the one who opens the heart to respond to the gospel message. The next pitfall is assuming the reality of regeneration, which uh, it, it just means assuming they've actually come to genuine faith in Christ. When anyone responds to the gospel, it's, it's an exciting and joyful thing, right? Like, it, it's exciting. Even the Bible says that the, the angels rejoice in heaven when someone repents. And we rejoice along with them that they've come to a place of fellowship with and worship of God. However, we need to recognize that a child can often respond to the gospel call for non-genuine purposes. It's not that they're trying to deceive us. It's just that their minds aren't there yet. And so when they they respond, they could be doing it to peer pressure, like we've talked about. Uh, They could be doing it just because they see this is what mom and dad want me to. Children are highly intuitive people. Children aren't dumb at all. Children are pick up on your emotions. They pick on what you expect them to be doing. And when they respond to the gospel, say, hey, hey, I told you the gospel. Do you want to respond? Do you want to respond? It's possible that the response is just because they understand this is what they want me to do. This is what my my cousin wants me to do. This is what my my big brother, my big sister wants me to do. This is what my my Sunday school teacher wants me to, to do. Additionally, the Bible warns that children tend to be immature, naive, foolish, capricious, and that means impulsive, inconsistent and fickle and unstable and easily deceived. As a result, they often think they understand what they're responding to when in fact they're not really thinking past this very moment. And there's, there's a fun and easy example of this. Like you can go on YouTube and, and see this. It's called the marshmallow experiment. And back in the 1960s, there was an experiment where they took 165 kids and brought them into a room one at a time. And on the room, there was a marshmallow. And they said, you can eat this one marshmallow right now, or I need to leave the room for 10 minutes. And if when I get back, there's still a marshmallow, you can have two marshmallows or a pretzel stick if you'd like that instead. 30% of the children ate the marshmallow within 30 seconds of the person leaving the room. Another 40% ate the marshmallow within six minutes. And they didn't get more granular than that. So it may have been that like 20% of it in the first minute and like it kind of staggered out after that. But I understand, either way, by the six minute mark, 70% of the children had already eaten the marshmallow because they couldn't even think about 10 minutes in the future getting even more of what they wanted. Let alone being able to understand something that would affect their eternal position. But... Well, it's true to say that 70% of them failed. It's also true to say that 30% of them succeeded. 30% of the kids uh, waited the full 10 minutes and got that second marshmallow or pretzel stick. 
So when we evangelize children, it's important to realize that it is absolutely possible for a child to understand the full weight of the gospel message and respond positively to it, as well as understanding that many of them, when they give that gospel response, say, yes, I want to be saved, they might not really be understanding what they are are saying. Uh, They might end up thinking that they're saved while never actually trusting in Christ as their Savior. And why is this important? What, what does it matter if we take a child at their word? Like if we say, hey, hey, little Timmy, do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? And they say, absolutely. What's the problem with us saying, yes, I believe Timmy? What do you think? He might not have thought about it thoroughly. He might not have thought about it, but how does that affect you? How does that affect the way you respond? What do you think? Okay, uh, double condemnation. Mm, maybe, maybe. Um, I think the, the issue here is if you knew for a fact that they weren't saved, what would you do? What would you do? You know someone, you know that a child isn't saved, what would you do? You would evangelize them as you are bringing them up. You would evangelize them. That's the issue here. If we assume that every child says, yes, I believe in Jesus. If we say, yes, okay. You, you believe in Jesus, I believe you 100%. There's a temptation to stop evangelizing to them. There's a temptation to start, you know, trying to teach them the, the deeper means of the scripture when they haven't even gotten to the starting line yet. We need to continue to pray for children who even profess to know Christ, that their faith would in fact be genuine, and that as they grow older, we would see increasing signs of that genuine faith. And at the same time, we need to realize that maybe just maybe, they don't understand the full weight of the gospel message, and we need to continue to evangelize to them uh, at the same time. A closely related pitfall to assuming a child is saved is assuring a child of their salvation. If when we see a child sinning, our response is to tell them, hey, it's okay, we all sin, I 100% know that you are in fact a Christian because you prayed a prayer with me. That's an issue, uh, it's going to create an issue where they might change their outward behavior because, okay, hey, I I got in trouble for doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. While at the same time, not really addressing the inner heart issue because mommy and daddy, big brother or big sister, they're constantly telling me I'm 100% a Christian. So it's not that I have an inner heart problem that needs to be addressed. It's just I need to become more in line with what the scripture says. Like we're skipping a step. We're trying to to get to the deepening faith when they don't even have faith yet. And there's also an issue where as we're telling them, yes, you're a Christian, yes, you're a Christian, the confidence for their salvation becomes you instead of what they have done with Christ, instead of how they've responded to the gospel call. It's not our role to give them that assurance. It's not our role to be the proof of their salvation, We encourage others to continue in the faith and walk in Christ, but it is the role of the Holy Spirit to give the actual assurance of salvation. We're told this in Romans 8, 15, and 16. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is talking about people who have come to faith in Christ. At that moment, we receive the spirit of of adoption. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, God 
fully knows the innermost parts of the heart of, heart of man and knows when someone's salvation is and isn't genuine, right? right? God isn't in heaven going, I wonder, I wonder if Amy's saved. I'll have to wait till she dies to find out. Like, no, God knows. We don't, <laughs> but God does provide a way for us as humans to see the proof of someone's salvation. And that's through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Who can, who can name them off for me off the top of their heads? Go for it, William. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, gentleness, and self-control. Very good. And yeah, that comes from uh, Galatians 5, through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When we continue to assure a child that they are saved, despite not displaying any of the fruits of the Spirit, we're giving them false confidence. And they will eventually grow into teens and adults who outwardly go through the uh, drippings of religion. They come to church. They tithe. They serve in ministry. They, they might even spend time in their Bible. But their inward heart is far removed from God. One final pitfall that goes hand-in-hand hand with assuring the child of salvation uh, and, and pushing them toward that is rushing the child into baptism. And, and let me just add on to that also the pitfall of rushing children into other church sacraments, such as the Lord's Supper. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Table is an important part of the Christian walk. We are commanded in Scripture that after we come to faith in Christ, we are to be baptized and we are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, for baptism, Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38 says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then for the Lord's Supper, we're told in Luke twenty two nineteen, And when he, that is Jesus, had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, the cup, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant of my blood. And this commandment is then repeated in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 32. So yes, as Christians, absolutely 100%, we are to be baptized. We are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and if you are a believer and you haven't been baptized yet, let me encourage you to start thinking about that. Uh, you're definitely getting to the age where you should be able to recognize your own state before Christ and be able to start thinking about those, those things such as baptism. Uh, and we'd love to have a, a chat with you and sit down and say, hey, you know, let's talk about your testimony. Let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit you see in your life that is leading you to believe that you are saved. And that way we can, we can either confirm along with you, yes, baptism would be a great thing, or I might say, hey, you know what? we are glad that you're interested in this, but I think you need to go back and reevaluate some things. And there's no shame if that happens, guys. Uh, but this is, is really the heart of the issue. Uh, we need to be aware if we have genuinely placed our faith in Christ. And with children, it is extremely difficult to recognize if they have a genuine faith in Christ or if they merely have external obedience to their parents or to their teachers. If anyone cannot say enough in a testimony to make it clear that they understand and embrace the gospel, then they need to wait just a minute before being baptized. They need to wait a minute before taking the Lord's Supper. There is no need to rush into these things, especially with the Lord's Supper. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30 warns us 
against taking the supper, uh, Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, such as doing it because you feel like you're going to be judged for not doing it. Like, hey, all my friends are doing this, and I'm the only one passing that little tray on, on along. Uh, it, it says in 1 Corinthians 11:27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number of sleep, which was a poetic way of saying they did. So those are the pitfalls. Those are the common mistakes we make when we evangelize the children. We dumb it down too much. We rob the gospel of its, of its power. We try to coerce a positive response once we give the gospel presentation. We say, come on, man, don't you want to be a Christian? Don't you want to have forgiveness for your sins? You just need to pray a prayer with me. And then once they finally give in that coercion, we try to rush them into the church sacraments, things that they have no business doing at this point. And in doing so, we give them a false assurance of their salvation. How then are we supposed to evangelize the children? Like these are, these are some big issues. Because then remember, we absolutely should be telling children the gospel. If we did not tell children the gospel, then we would be disobeying Christ when he said, do not keep the little children from coming to me in Matthew 19, 14. Well, the first thing we need to do, like this is, this is one of the most important things you can do just in general, especially with a child that you're with all the time, like a little sister or brother, and you're telling them about the gospel, the first thing you need to do is set a consistent example of godliness. Because what you do is going to speak a lot louder than what you say to them all the time. If you spend Monday through Saturday disrespecting your parents, arguing with them, cursing as soon as they're out of the room, uh, talking about how you really just want this relationship with someone that you have no business wanting outside the bounds of marriage. Uh, and then on Sunday, you claim to be a Christian? No one's going to believe you. Certainly not your, your younger siblings or cousins. No one's going to buy that. Matthew 5.16 says that we are to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you live your life in obedience to Christ, it's not just setting a good testimony, which it is, but it's glorifying God to a lost and dying world. And Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to the world. That means don't be just like the people of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As cousins, as brothers, as sisters, as just a helper in a Sunday school class, the way you live your life will be one of the greatest tools you have to witness to the children around you as it proves you actually believe anything you're telling them. But of course, it's not enough that we simply live our lives in a moral way. We've got to proclaim the complete gospel of Christ. So th this is the opposite of dumbing it down. We give them the complete gospel. And we're told in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. It doesn't matter if that person is an adult or a child. If anyone is going to repent and be saved, it's going to be through the proclamation of the message of the cross. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm just going to read verse 18 and 23 and, and verses 23 and 24, which says, 
For the word of the cross, that is the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this truth is reinforced in passages such as 2 Timothy 3.15, James 1.18, and 1 Peter 1.23-25. Or one of my favorite passages, it wasn't included in our, in our book, but one of my favorite passages that talks about the vital importance of the evangelizing the complete message of God is Romans 10.14-15, which says, How then will they call on him who they have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. No one, children included, will ever be saved apart from the telling of the gospel. And no one is going to tell the gospel unless they're being sent. And y'all are being sent right now. God has called you to evangelize. And if you have younger siblings who don't know God, Guys, that is your gospel field. This is why it's so important to be talking with your younger siblings about God. Like, it's easy to talk, what's the latest video game? What's the TV show you're watching? How about that Mario movie? Really fun. We all watched it together. It's easy to talk about the fluff of life, the things that aren't really matter, and then completely ignore the Bible. Never bring that up with your siblings. We are to tell them the full, unabridged, beautiful gospel using scripture. And I get it. It's tempting to talk down to kids, but we cannot water down the gospel message. We cannot downplay our sin. We cannot cheapen Christ's sacrifice. To do so does not make it easier for a child to understand the message. All it does is make it easier for them to believe in a false gospel that will not save them. God was not able to save you because you were so smart that you could understand the gospel. God saved you because he used the gospel someone preached to you, either perfectly or awkwardly, but he used that complete gospel presentation to bring you to him, to take your heart of stone that was in your rebellious corpse and turn it into a heart of flesh and a living servant. When we present the gospel, the key is to be clear and thorough, and we should take each moment we get of interaction with that child and use it as a teaching opportunity. So, for example, you're not parents, but disciplining and correcting a child. Now, you try and discipline and correct your... Let me ask this. How many people have tried to discipline and correct a sibling? How'd that go for you? Was it pretty great? Did they go, man, I love the fact that you tattled on me. No, no, your sibling is never going to be happy that you're trying to take on the role of their parent. You're not their parent. But far, far in the future, maybe you're going to be a parent. Not so far in the future, maybe you're going to be helping out in Sunday school, and there's going to come a time where you have to correct this kid because they are not obeying today. And when that happens, the goal of that correction moment should never be about reprimanding them because they're inconveniencing you. It's not, I want to be playing human pinball right now, but instead I've had to pull you aside to talk for the 15th time that no, it's not appropriate to punch someone. That's not the point of that moment. 
The point of that moment is that we need to take them aside and bring them back to the authority of the Scriptures. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, fathers, none of y'all here yet in the youth group except the leaders, but it's still the last part we need to focus on. When we are correcting someone, the focus should be on bringing them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And the way that's going to happen is by bringing it back to the Bible every time. Next, when we evangelize to children, we need to have a firm understanding of the biblical evidence of salvation. What that means is we need to be able to recognize the fruits of the Spirit. We need to be able to recognize when someone has genuinely come to faith, not based on a feeling, not based on their word, but based on what the Bible says, these characteristics will be true of the person who has come to faith in God. And what does, that, what does a child look or living out evidence of their salvation look like? Uh, this isn't an exhaustive list, but according to scriptures, they're going to follow Christ. And that's found in uh, John 10, 27. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Uh, they're also going to be confessing their sins. First John 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, they're not going to be probably confessing it to big brother and sister. They might. You might have a close enough relationship where they say, hey, I was really, I was really out of line the other day. I'm sorry. Maybe they sinned against you. They might say, you know what? At church, there's this one guy who just won't leave me alone, and I was really rude to him, and I need to repent of that. So yeah, maybe you have that relationship with them, and that would be a great thing to do. I certainly didn't have that relationship with any of my siblings, I'll be honest. Uh, but Maybe, uh, maybe as a, a leader in a church, in the Sunday school, work to have that relationship with them. Work to have, be in a spot where they feel comfortable enough telling you about their sins so that you can encourage them to repent and follow after Christ. We're also going to see that they love their brothers. That's 1 John 3.14. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. They will obey God's commandments, John 15, 14, and 1 John 2, 3. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, know Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Further evidence, evidence will be that they will do the will of God. This is in Matthew twelve fifty. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. They will abide in God's word, John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, this is going to be an easy one for y'all, even as siblings. It's going to be obvious if one of your siblings is spending time in God's word. And this is something where you can ask them, and they're not going to mind, probably. It's not going to be like, hey, did you spend time in God's word today? Why not? You just need to go do that right now. No, but if you come with like, hey, uh, what are you reading right now? Like, what passage are you in? Oh, I, I don't know. Like, it's really hard for me to, to find a passage. Well, you know what? I'm reading here right now. It's really easy. Like, like this is what I'm doing. And they go, oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll read there too. You're reading there? I'll read there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a great way that you can encourage them along. And that's a great way that you can see that they are living out some evidence of their salvation if they are consistently in the word. And finally, they're going to do good works. This is Ephesians 2.10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I really love this last one. Just so that we don't start to think too highly of ourselves when we evangelize other people, like, come on, man, don't you see all the great things I'm doing? Can't you see the fruits of the Spirit in my life? No, uh, any good work that you're currently doing, it's not because you're a good person. It's not because you've sought them out. God had to prepare the good works for you to do for you to ever be able to do them. Without God being the one to provide them, you would not be able to do them. We are completely and desperately dependent on God to save us, to keep us from stumbling, to preserve us for his own glory, and to even have an opportunity to do something that honors his great name. Well, once you can recognize these biblical evidences of salvation, we can see that Hey, it looks like they're reading their Bible. It looks like they had the fruits of the Spirit in their life. It looks like they are loving the brethren. Um, Then there's this tension that exists because you see, hey, here's all this proof, and you kind of want to bolster them up and say, yes, yes, I can see you're a Christian. But at the same time, what's one of the pitfalls we're not supposed to do? We're not supposed to be the assurance of their salvation. So, so we got this, this common tension going on. When I say tension, I, I don't mean like, oh, I'm so stressed out because this is such a tense situation. I mean, there's two forces and they're working in these opposite directions to accomplish something useful. And that's a mouthful of a sentence, but has anyone seen one of these tables before? This is a real table. I love, this is so trippy. This is called a tensegrity table. It is being balanced on this. This is not a steel rod. That's a wire. I mean, you could replace this with a rope. And the entire top of the table is being balanced on this rope. And the reason it doesn't fall like you would expect it to is because at each corner, there's another wire. And that wire is perfectly tensioned so that when you try to push it one way, the wire catches it. And it holds it in perfect balance over that center point. In the same way, there are two truths working together under perfect tension that we need to keep in mind when we witness the children. The first is it's important that we don't push them into a false confession of faith such that they believe they are saved when they're not, like we've already discussed. But the second thing is, as we observe them and we see signs of this genuine repentance in their life, we need to be encouraging them as we see it. So encourage them when we see these possible signs of conversion. Now we've already gone over how children can be fickle and immature, so there can be a temptation, like, hey, I don't want to be in the pitfall of being the source of their, the assurance of their salvation. Like, that's the Holy Spirit's job. I understand. Uh, I am not going to do anything to reinforce their belief. That's a horrible place to be in. Like, like going to that extreme is almost just as bad as trying to be the source of their, their assurance. As older siblings or cousins or leaders in a class, we need to be encouraging these signs of the fruits of the Spirit. So for example, if, if I saw a kid who really wanted something and they said, you know what, we're not doing that today. And instead of throwing a fit or being upset or sulking in the corner, they said, okay. And they went and did whatever the activity it was. Like, I wouldn't go over there and be like, yeah, you got it, man. That was perfect. You're absolutely a Christian because you responded the way you're supposed to. Like, I wouldn't do that because that would be 
becoming the, the assurance of their salvation. But what I would do is at some point when it was naturally a, a good time, next time I was with them, I'd be like, hey man, I saw the way you had a good attitude when you get, didn't get what you want. That's really great. That's really Christ-honoring. You know, the Bible tells us to have that in Philippians 2.14, to do all things without grumbling and complaining. That way, I'm, I'm not giving them any sort of false sense of assurance, but I am encouraging, encouraging them to excel all the more, and I'm doing it by bringing it back to the authority of the Scriptures. Finally, when we evangelize the children, we need to trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. I mean, this is, this is true for anyone we witness to, right? Uh, but it can be harder when you're witnessing to a sibling or a cousin or someone in, in your Sunday school class that you've, you've formed a really close relationship with. You, you start to believe that if they don't come to faith, maybe it's somehow your fault. Maybe you're just not presenting the gospel right. And, and you're also really excited. You're like, oh, I really want my little sister or brother to come to faith. I want them to know the joy of God's salvation so much. But that's not where we should be. Like, we absolutely should want them to come to the faith, but we shouldn't be causing that to pressure them into making a, a false profession of faith. Uh, and we shouldn't have the mindset that if they don't come to salvation, it's somehow our fault. God has called us to preach the whole gospel to children. Clearly, and in a manner they can understand without diluting the core truths of the gospel. Beyond that, God is the one who regenerates the heart. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So who is everyone who is born of the, of the Spirit? It is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to a new birth in Christ. It's not a matter of you being extra faithful, or spending extra time with them. And, and that should be a thing that brings you release and comfort. It's not your responsibility. God is the one in control. Apart from being a consistent example of godliness and witnessing to them, you don't have to worry about being the one that brings them the faith. And in fact, the best thing you can do for a sibling or cousin or any child that doesn't know the Lord yet is after being that consistent example, you get on your knees and you pray for them. I mean, think about this just for one second. God is the one at work in the hearts of all mankind. God is the one who can take that heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. God is the one calling sinners to himself. The absolute best thing you can do is be praying to God that God would call that child to repentance because he's the one who does that. Pray that you would have more opportunities to share the gospel with them and that you would be setting a good example for them. Pray that when you see those signs of conversion, that that would be genuine and they, that they would continue to learn more about God and excel all the more. And, and that's what we do for y'all, guys. We as your leaders. We pray for you. We pray that those signs of conversion would be genuine, that you wouldn't be pulling the wool over our eyes because let's face it, I got the wool over one eye already. It doesn't take much to trick Matt, Okay. But God knows your heart, and so we pray for you. We pray that you would come to know the surpassing joy of having your sins forgiven and coming into a right standing before God. We pray that you all would recognize that you are sinners who deserve to go to hell for your rebellion against God, and it's only Christ living the perfect life and then dying on the cross for me 
that brings salvation. God, Christ lived the life I failed to leave, and Christ bore the wrath that I could not bear. That's the only thing that brings us forgiveness. And when you confess God as your Lord and Master and recognize that it was God alone who brings salvation, that is what brings you to faith. But if you've yet to do that, I pray that you would come to talk to us, any of us. And this isn't a coercion thing. This is an invitation. No pressure. Anytime you guys want to talk to us, we are here for you. And we would love to do so about what it means to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's go and pray. Heavenly Father, we do just lift up these things to you. We pray that for anyone here who is in Christ, that our our faith would be genuine, that we wouldn't be deceiving ourselves, that we wouldn't have placed our assurance in some false gospel. We wouldn't put our assurance in a, a prayer we prayed as ch- children or, or in a, our parents telling us over and over again that we were saved, but our, our faith would be firmly founded in your work alone, your perfect life you lived, and your perfect death on the cross. And Lord, we pray for those that we witness to, that you would be preparing their hearts to receive the gospel message. Lord, we again pray for Alejandro and his family, uh, just that he would have had a great time with them and that he would have had lots of opportunity to to share the gospel message with them and that you would have opened their hearts to be receptive to it. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.